Well, I told you this morning where we would be heading tonight. We're going to finish up Hebrews chapter 7. And so if you're here this morning, you know that uh, we've started looking at Hebrews chapter 7 a few weeks ago with this order of the high priest Melchizedek and how he is related to the ministry of Jesus Christ and why that makes the ministry of Jesus Christ superior, why it makes it greater, why it makes it more important. Not just more important, but more sweet as we look forward to a greater hope that is afforded to Christians who have a hope in a present sense in Jesus Christ that allows us to draw near to God. Tonight I want to look at the last eight verses of this chapter. So we'll begin in verse 20 and we'll read through verse 28. I hope you have your Bibles with you. You can turn to that and read along with me while I read out loud. The Bible says... And it was not without an oath, for these who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented in death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for for his, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This evening, I want to focus on this word forever as we look at a forever promise, the forever high priest who is personal, who is forever pure, and who is forever perfect. So there's four Ps there if you need help remembering what we talked about tonight as you're laying in bed and you think, what in the world was Brother talking about after we just finished that very, very dry um, dialogue and discourse on this priest Melchizedek? You can just remember something about four Ps, and then hopefully I'll get your memory jogging, and you can write down some notes, and you can remember that we have a forever promise. That's our first point, our forever promise. We find this in verse 20, that God did not appoint Jesus Christ to this priesthood without a promise himself. Verse 20 begins, It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, the author is quoting from Psalm 110. This is verse 4. And we saw this this morning that this prophecy or promise might be a better way to look at it, that Jesus would come in the order of Melchizedek, appeared not just 
in the New Testament, but it was echoed by David's writing in Psalm 110. And also, we see it all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, as Moses proclaims that it's by faith that these things are accomplished. So, I say all of that, hopefully to stress that it's not necessary for me this evening to belabor the significance of Jesus' superiority as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, rather than the order of the priest in the name of Aaron or the Levites. If I don't have to belabor that point, let's simply look at what makes Jesus' ministry unique. What makes this priesthood of Jesus Christ distinguished from the Levitical system since he's not under it, since he serves in the order of Melchizedek? What makes him unique, first of all, what our text tells us, is that it came with a promise. Now, it's easy to read by this and not quite see the significance, but our author here writing is making use of this word. He says, he was made priest by an oath. And this is almost like, to him personally, this is a bigger deal than we realize. We see him all the way down to verse 28, talking about this oath that affirms what it is. And Well, that's not happenstance. An oath in the cultural setting that the author of Hebrews was writing in carries a tremendous amount of significance. In fact, in the Jewish tradition even, an oath carried a tremendous amount of significance. Oaths were so important in the ancient days that in the Jewish book, the the Mishnah, that is the book where we find recorded the oral teachings of the Second Temple Jerusalem, There is an entire section of the Mishnah, in fact, two sections, dedicated to the Nedarim, or the Shebuoth, that is, oaths and vows. This was a ritualistic, important, essential part of society. And so we find here a Hebrew author writing to a Hebraic audience, and he is stressing that Jesus comes by an oath. To help us understand why oaths are important, you have to put yourself in a position of a world where there are not civil courts, there are not necessarily contracts, where there are not executive authorities to carry these things out. In fact, an oath was the most solemn way that the world was maintained. Now, the Jewish tradition through the Mishnah certainly made it a bit more complicated. There was a procedure that somebody went through. All these different elements, not least of which was making an oath by somebody or in the presence of somebody. And so the most solemn of oaths, of course, would be made to God, the unchanging. If my oath was made in the presence of God, one illustration would be marriage vows. Like an unchanging God, that oath cannot be broken. In fact, all oaths, were sealed. They could not be changed. They could not be annulled. They could not be amended. We find an example of that even in further ancient days in Genesis chapter 27 when Isaac refuses to withdraw his oath to Jacob, even though he was deceived. This was an essential element to what made society run. 
When our author here says that Jesus Christ, compared to the Levites, is priest by an oath, he is stressing now that this is a promise, an unbreakable, unexchangeable, this makes him greater. It's like the difference between a, a bond servant, uh, like a, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, notaries, they have to have a bond that secures, they have to put money up that secures the efficacy of their work, right? Well, here's an oath, like a bond, that secures the efficacy of this priest's work. He's stressing the superiority of Jesus Christ. He quotes again from Psalm 104, verse 4, that the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. This is not only an oath made in the presence of God, but now also this is the unchanging, almighty God swearing unto Himself what His oath was. Is there anything more solemn, more reverend than that? This covenant priesthood begins to be introduced by Christ. Through His ministry, verse 22 says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor, or another word that we might use, um, the securer. He is the one that provides for us a new covenant in His blood rather than the law handed down to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, I might make one point here, and that is that I do not think it is necessary to completely get rid of what was before. We said, after all, if it's God making these oaths, that they're unchanging. Rather, what Christ does is He reveals the terms of the covenant in a more clear sense. And through this clearer illumination, we see a better covenant because all of the terms are exposed to us. In fact, the author of Hebrew, Hebrews will develop this idea later on as he tells us that it is through this new covenant that we are not only given the terms, but we're given the ability to uphold them as the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled in giving us a heart of flesh. This covenant, this priesthood, this life of faith, all of these things that we see coming from Christ continue forever. They are able to continue into eternity. What we should be doing now is experiencing exactly these things. In verse 23, we find that the former priests were inhibited because they kept dying. That seems to be a problem that most humans have. They keep dying. Certainly, someone who was made priest would have this problem because eventually they would die. Well, that carries with it its own set of problems, but Jesus Christ serving as priest, this isn't something that we have to worry about. The author is going to repeat now a point that we saw earlier this morning, that he has an indestructible life, but that is also that he is not prevented by being high priest by dying. He continues for us forever, verse 24 says. Verse 25 continues, Consequently, He is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I want to move now, not just looking at the forever promise, that is God's oath that has secured this priesthood, but I want to talk about this forever personal priest, Jesus Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. 
I preached on this passage January 8th of this year. I know all of you already remember that sermon. Remember January 8th, we were talking about our ministry theme for 2023, worship. And we looked at this passage with the idea of prayer. From that, we were able to derive that it is through Christ that we have this power, that we're able to draw near to Him, that He is the one interceding for us so that we could understand what prayer is as an act of worship before the church. This evening, I want to make sure we look at it in its proper context. I don't think we were abusing it in January 8th, but I like to look at things a little bit closer. This priest, Jesus Christ, as a consequence of being appointed priest in the order of Melchizedek, secured by an oath from the Almighty God, consequently, the Bible says, is able to save to the uttermost. Some of you all might be familiar with the late evangelist Billy Sunday. I'm not a fan of most Billy Sunday's theology, but he did have some cool turn of phrases. He'd say, God saved him from the guttermost. He was an alcoholic when God brought him to faith. The only problem with Billy Sunday's infamous line, being saved from the guttermost, is he kind of misses the point of this passage. God doesn't save us from the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost. This isn't a place He's bringing us from, but a place He's bringing us to. This means that what He provides for us is to be able to draw near God. That's the ultimate fulfillment, the whole purpose of this great priestly hope that is promised for us in verse 19 that we looked at this morning, that because God has presented for us Himself as the Son to live in the priestly form, that we can now be saved to the Uttermost, that word able again is dunamai in the Greek, the same word that we get our English word dynamite. Christ is able with the power of dynamite to bring us to the uttermost, to save those who draw near to God. Not only that, but he affords us the ability to draw near to God. This priest is personal. That's the second P. I said first that there's a forever promise and there's also a forever personal God. You see, the problem with these priests that keep dropping dead is that something inevitably happens whenever you have somebody serving you in this capacity. It's much more intimate than simply going to somebody to atone for you before God. When you have a priest whose job is to serve before you, they begin to know you and understand you. They begin to even go as far as to know the things that trouble you. We could compare this to the pastor of a church. A long-time faithful pastor who cares for one's soul. Why do we not need itinerant ministers? Because the Bible doesn't ask for itinerant ministers. The Bible asks for shepherds who can shepherd the souls of their flock. Shepherds who can become painfully aware of people's tendencies their maturity, or in some cases, lack thereof, their strengths, their weaknesses, and is able to minister with those things in mind. 
Truly, a form of intimacy begins to develop in which the pastor of a church knows the whole church like a bride. He sees her faults and blemishes, and he loves her faithfully and tirelessly, all the more relying on God to be a faithful servant of the church. We use that same word intimacy when we discuss marriage, right? Anyone that's been married for a while will tell you eventually comes the point, and we're very fortunate, other than Miss Jeannie here, Dwayne's gone, Sherry's gone, Deanne's gone, so we can be honest tonight. Eventually, you begin to see the blemishes. And I'm not just talking about the wrinkles and the cracks. I'm talking about the personality traits. I'm talking about the habits. You've been married long enough, you begin to see the ugly. A godly marriage seeks to love their spouse despite those things. And they don't seek it through their own power or their own will, but they seek it through God's power. As they're reminded that this person that you have entrusted to me this person that you have blessed me with, this person who I praise you for, this person who you have given me the ability to care for and trusted me with the ability to shepherd, this person, you love this person. I want to love this person the way that you do. Because in all of these blemishes and all of these cracks, I'm not just reminded of their failures, but I'm reminded of my transgressions, my failures before you, God. And if I can love them, then it really is possible that you can love me. Now, that's the hard, honest truth about marriage, but the same thing can be said about the relationship between a church and her pastor. The same could be said about a priest and those that he serves. He sees all these things and loves them through it. And then they die. Now, we have the same problem with spouses, and I'm, for anyone listening, I'm sorry. How do you get that intimacy back? It just doesn't rekindle itself with a new priest who's been appointed to fill this position, do they? Oh, but with Jesus Christ, we have something different. We do not have a high priest that passes away and goes away. Rather, we have a high priest who serves forever. A priest that knows us without fail. In fact, someone that loves us despite of all of these different failings, there is not a confession that can be made that would surprise him because he knows before you tell him. We have a high priest who is personal forever. You see why Christ is greater? Because he lives forever, because he reigns forever, because he's the intercessor forever. He is always intimate. In fact, there is nothing that can be said to him that will cause him to turn away from those he has called to faith. Oh, this high priest that has been given to us, not only is he secured by a forever promise, not only is he forever personal, but turn to verse 26, we find he is 
forever pure. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. You want to know about Christ? These three words describe Him. I want to be a little nerdy tonight because I can. First word there is holy. Holy. We've talked about this word. We should be familiar with this word. After all, God tells us to be holy. We've defined this word in the past, I think with most frequency, to be set apart. Well, that's the word hagios. Hagios. Has the gamma in there. It means to be set apart for a particular purpose. That is not the word used here to, to describe Christ. This is an uncommon word that does not appear very often in the Greek New Testament. It's the word hasios. Hasios. No gamma. This word translated holy doesn't mean to be set apart. This word refers rather to a moral perfectness. That means you and I, we might be hagios. We might be set apart for the purpose of glorifying God. We consider this room holy. It's set apart for the purpose of worshiping God, for the proclamation of the word. We consider these things set apart for a particular purpose. But God, Jesus Christ, well, He's not just set apart. He is in His essential nature perfect, lacking in nothing. Of a primarily moral quality, he is pure. This is Christ. When it look beyond his moral character, we find that the ESV translates the next word innocent. Um, I believe the King James translates it harmless, which is better than innocent, but still yet, I would prefer to translate this next word as harmless. Harmless. This is the word akakos. Akakos. The word kakos in Greek is the word which means ugly, evil, worthless, mean, unforgiving. And we throw that A in front of it or that alpha in front of it, which means it's none of these things. Jesus is so far removed from ugliness, filth, disaster, decay, but he is not that. By definition, he is harmless. Well, here we have the issue of presenting ourselves with the depravity of sin, the human condition that we must be faced with. If we're going to come to know Christ, we must first admit ourselves to be sinners in need of a Savior. Do we do this simply to make people miserable? If Christ were able, if He could come... If he could look every single person on this earth in the eye individually, one at a time, and ask, have I caused you any harm? There would not be a person who could say yes, honestly. He is gentle with the wayward and the ignorant. He knows our positions and has experienced temptation that he might be perfected for the sake of serving in such a role as intercessor it becomes our propitiation, our fulfillment. He is harmless. And this last word, 
He is unstained. That is, that even though He became man, even though He dwelt among sinners, He lived in a corrupted world, there is no stain upon Him. He is so holy, in fact, that the sin could not touch Him. Even though He touched sinners, it could not remain on Him. He is separated from sinners, the Bible says. This isn't to deny Jesus Christ as human or to deny His humanity, but this is to say that by essence of who Jesus Christ is, He is so distinct, so truly divine, that He cannot stand among sinners and not be recognized. Today, we know Christ to be glorified in the heavens. We know Him to be our high priest. Personal, pure, and secured by a promise that lasts forever. My last P this evening. And that is that Christ will forever be perfect. He will forever be perfect just as the covenant that He has secured on our behalf as the co-signer to our name. He will always be perfect. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priest. But the word of an oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Not only does he live forever, but he is forever. Again, according to the Mishnah, according to the uh, section that is dedicated on the Ritual that would take place on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would come before all of Israel to make atonement for the sins of the nation. Not all of the sins, just the sins the people didn't know about, their unknowing sins. The high priest would have to wait seven days before he could go in on this Day of Atonement and make that sacrifice. Those seven days were the purification rituals that would take place leading up to that because it's necessary for a high priest according to man to not only make sins for the people that he represents but to make atonement for sins according to himself and his household. And so this procedure would begin. The high priest would have to stay up on the seventh day, the Day of Atonement, as he built up. And so there were even instructions as we read the Jewish tradition, some things I thought were pretty funny. You weren't to withhold food, from, food or drink from him, but on the seventh day, be sure not to let him eat too much because he might get sleepy. If the high priest began to sleep, the chiefs, of the Sanhedrin were supposed to snap their middle finger in his face and they would have a line that they were supposed to read. Oh, high priest, remember this day is holy, for it is the day of atonement. If he could read, the man who was high priest that year, he would read from the scriptures. If he was unable to read, he would have someone read to him. And he would repeat it back to them from memory. If he was a teacher, he'd teach all of these things, focusing his mind on God as he prepared not only to make himself perfect in the eyes of God so that he could perform the task that had been given to him, but so that he could become the perfecter for the people of Israel, forgiving them or making atonement for the sins that they didn't know about. He would bathe after making sacrifices for his sins, and he would put on these white clothes. He would pray to God a particular prayer written down in the 
the book of oral Jewish tradition, he would pray in front of the chiefs. O God, I have committed iniquity, transgressed and sinned before thee. I and my house, O God, forgive the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I committed and transgressed and sinned before thee. I and my house, as it is written in the law of thy servant Moses, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins Shall ye be clean before the, before the Lord? And after that, then he could make a sacrifice of atonement for the nation of Israel. This isn't necessary for Christ. He doesn't have to go through these rituals, not because they're useless, but rather because he is already pure, because he is already holy, harmless, and unstained. He is already perfect. And he stands as our intercessor that he might make us perfect. That we might look forward to a day when we are glorified, the end of chapter 7, our author in the book of Hebrews is going to begin the transition as he looks no longer at just what are the qualifications of being a priest and how does Christ fulfill this, but now he's going to begin looking at what does the ministry of the priest look like and how does Christ do that for us today. Before we get there, next week, just in case you're wondering, we're going to have to return to Hebrews 5.11. We skipped a portion. I think it's going to make more sense now. We're going to have to go back and look at the exhortation that is given to the people of Israel to grow up in the faith. To be mature in our understanding of these things. And we'll do so with a look at the forever promise. Jesus, our co-signer, for the agreement that we could never keep on our own terms. I didn't mention something here, but another thing I saw interesting when I was looking at this in Greek, that the normal word for a covenant is the word sisthakit. Uh, but here for the word covenant in verse 22, it's not the word sisthakit, it's diathakit. And the significance of that is, you might think of it, a covenant is an agreement reached by two parties that come together and they make a covenant and enter it in equal terms. But we know God doesn't, he's not, we're not on equal terms with God. He commands his covenants. The word diathakit is closer to the word testament in the sense that if you have a last will and testament, the testator person that decides that thing decides the terms of their last days and maybe even their memorial services after they're gone and they're able to testate these things, right? So, is, so it is true that God, or through Jesus Christ, makes a better testament. Would, I think covenant's the right translation, but there's some significance in the difference there. Because God has already commanded His terms of being absolutely perfect. That's what it takes. If you want to draw near to God on your own, you have to be absolutely perfect. 
The problem with this old law is there's no means by which we might fulfill this. In this new covenant provided by Christ, He gives us the means by which we can fulfill this through the Spirit that dwells within us, through a real relationship with Him. These things are possible through Christ. Jesus becomes the co-signer. He becomes the one who would sign for the bill that we could never pay on our own. That Christ is forever personal, that He knows our needs and saves us comprehensively from all that humanly needs saving within us. He knows and then He does. He saves to the uttermost that Christ is forever pure, that we should delight in the simplicity of Christ's greatness. And I found this warning from Spurgeon that I'd like to leave with you. The superior, superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ is a topic that will not interest everybody. To many persons, it will seem a piece of devotional rapture, if not an idle tale. Yet, there will ever be a remnant according to the election of grace to whom this mediation will be inexpressibly sweet. It should be sweet for us to look at Christ and to say He's holy, unblemished, and harmless. Because He is forever perfect. The perfect sacrifice, standing perfectly qualified. And we are perfectly safe in His embrace. Father in heaven, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for letting us get through it. Lord, I pray that You would continue to bless us with insight and understanding as we grow in You. That You would forgive us of our failures and our sins. God, I pray that if there is any sin within this congregation that is not found or not known, that You would reveal it to us and make it known that You would bless us as we pursue holiness in You, that You would bless us as we seek to know You better. Lord, as we leave this place or prepare to leave this place this evening, I pray that You would give us safe journeys back home, that You would bring us together soon, whether in this place or with You again. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.